Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is happening, gang? We are pumped about this one today. So today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, we bring you part two of our look at the 98-99 offseason. And in this episode, we dive into the top of the 99 draft. This is a very famous draft in that a lot of people thought this draft was going to be much like the famous quarterback draft of 83, where you had numerous top-flight quarterbacks who'd be selected in the top 12 Bill dispels a couple of modern myths about this draft, about the process of mock drafts, and a couple more media things. But the meat of this show today is truly about his decision at number four between Edron James and Ricky Williams. And it was a complex decision at the time because the media was all about Ricky, but Bill, from early in the process, had his mind made up that Edron was the player he wanted to bring into the Colts. So we get some hilarious stories about fan reaction, media reaction, and all that encompasses bringing Edger into the Colts, which obviously, you know, he should be getting a gold jacket a couple weeks ago, but this uh, turned out to be a good decision. And then finally, we dive into one of the most famous trades in the history of the NFL with Mike Dickett trading his entire draft, one slot behind Bill at five, to the Redskins for a panoply of picks. So get ready, sit back, relax. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Poling, and this is our look at the 1999 NFL Draft Part 2. Here we go. All right, gang. Well, the lamp is lit and we are ready for another episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. And I say this a lot at the beginning, but this is truly one I've always wanted to dive into with Bill. So in the last episode, we kind of looked at the first part of the situation in 99, what was happening with Marshall Falk, what what was happening with the contract situation. And when we left you guys off, we were heading into the draft in 99. And so to, to give you guys a sense of where we were, the top five picks in the 99 draft were the expansion Cleveland Browns were picking number one. You had the Eagles at two, the Bengals at three, Bill and the Colts were at four, and the Redskins were at five. So the talk of the draft that year was this was supposedly going to be uh, the, the reboot of the great 1983 draft with the quarterback rich group that was drafted in that year of John Elway, Todd Blackledge. Jim Kelly, Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and Dan Marino, which incredibly he lasted until that point in time. Uh, this time around, the characters were Tim Couch, Donovan McNabb, Achilles Smith, Cade McNown, and Dante Culpepper. Uh, they were all expected to be picked again in the top 12. Now, Bill, obviously you did not need a quarterback. But undoubtedly, as always, you did your due diligence. Uh, so tell us, you know, in looking at those quarterbacks, what did you think about them and what did you think about this idea that was floating around that this was comparable to 83? Uh, well, the idea that it was comparable to 83 was lunacy. Now, many of the quarterbacks in 83 failed. Only three really made it, three or four. We'd have to go back over the list for me to tell you who made it, but – uh, this was complete lunacy. Uh, there was one quarterback we felt was worthy of a first-round pick. The others were all either either off the board or way down the list. I don't know where that came from. 
Did you was it your impression though that other clubs were buying into that and no? So that was that was really a media concoction. Yeah, you didn't have any expectation that they guys would go one, two, and three out. None whatsoever. It was so far off the mark; it was laughable. <laughs> so whether they were to use it as a quarterback uh, for a quarterback or not, uh, were people interested? Were you getting any contact about anybody moving up into the four slot? No. So you were so going in. This was a situation where you were drafting fourth, and uh, you knew you knew who you were going to take. Uh, if you one last question about the quarterbacks, and then we'll, we'll forget about them. Uh, if you were going to take one of those quarterbacks, uh, who would it have been? You said there was one the one in there that you thought was worthy. Well, Donovan McNabb, we thought was a first rounder, but not a high first rounder. So let's go back to '83. Just, just to close this out, and you, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, how these guys did. So let me, let me repeat them for you. Here's who was up in '83. It was John Elway, obviously Todd Blackledge, Jim Kelly, a name close to home, Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and Dan Marino. Elway, Kelly, and Marino succeeded. Everyone else failed. So, out of that, you had three. Great quarterbacks and three guys who didn't really succeed. They they hung around some years, but didn't have the great careers, right? Correct. They weren't first round draft choices. They proved that, right? Well, I, I think in the interest of dispelling another myth. So as we ended the last episode, the popular notion was that Ricky Williams was the top running back in the draft, and most media mock drafts had you guys taking him at four, and then Edger and James going to Arizona at eight. Uh, much like we did with sort of dispelling the media myth about this draft being similar to 83. Can you give me your take on mock drafts, how much of a pain they are, any validity, and what they stir up with the fan base? Well, first of all, if you look at it from a professional standpoint, there is no validity. Um, if you look at it from a fan enjoyment standpoint um, I guess it has some value but the only real value or the only real attachment to reality are the ones that come out two weeks before the draft because by that time the media people have done enough surveying of people around the league some of whom are knowledgeable, some of whom are nothing but windbags. Um, and, and they have a feel for what's going to happen. So um, they take credit for being, uh, they actually take credit now in magazines and on the air for, quote, getting the first round right meaning that they picked people in the first round who get drafted in the first round. Um, all it, Now, they never get them right with respect to the clubs that they go to. And they themselves would admit that they can't anticipate trades, although some now are beginning to try and look into their clairvoyant crystal balls and, and predict trades. Uh, and they're always wrong. But the, 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 the bottom line is 
that two weeks prior to the draft, if you did enough canvassing, you could get a feel for the first 18 or 20 guys. Because that's what every, if you go back to the podcast that we did on the draft, I said the following. There are, in any given draft, between 18 and 22 players who are have first-round grades. There are 32 picks in the first round. So if we, if we take the middle ground and say 20 on average, then that means that there were 12 players picked in the first round who are not truly first-round players. In some years, there'll be 16 who are first-rounders. Some years, there'll be 20, 21. It just depends on the given year. Um, that's the reason why Bill Belichick, who's been drafting below 20 since 2003, uh, is, is prone to trade back unless he gets somebody that he really feels can help him right away because you're getting the same player uh, or the same grade, if you will, uh, you know, by trading back into the second round and you pick up a third round pick, which is valuable because the, the valuable picks in the draft are rounds one through three. If you study the history of the draft over time and you don't get lost in equations and other such nonsense, uh, you, you can you see that the, the odds of hitting on a pick in the first three rounds are 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 quite good. They're better than 50-50. After that, it's it's below 50-50. So you want to try and accumulate picks in rounds one, two, and three if you can. And if you're in the, in the, the bottom third of round one, the likelihood is that you're probably going to get a player that has a second round grade. If you're um, in, the, in, the, in the top of the round, the top 10 in the round, the likelihood is that you have a player targeted that that you like, that you feel like can help your team, and and you go ahead and make that pick. Um, trading back out of the first ten, uh, you know, you better have a firm conviction on who you're going to get. And I've always said, um, you know, if you go back, you better have three players you're happy with because the odds are that you're not going to get the one that you really like. So if you really like him, if you have a conviction, stay there and pick him. It's better to pick a player around too early than around too late, because by definition, if you pick him too late, he's gone. So, uh, uh, you know, if I if we had a conviction on a player, we're probably going to stay there and take him. If, if we didn't have a real firm conviction, then we're going to look to trade back. Now, you can't always... Can't always trade back. Um, not everybody's looking to go up. That's another myth that the media creates because they want you to think that there's a lot of action going on when in reality there, there usually isn't. Right, because that's definitely one of the sort of more sort of interesting parts of this draft that we'll get into later because there obviously was one of the, the bigger trades in draft history. But re related to sort of mock drafts, and the mock drafts for these ended up being somewhat accurate, and the quarterbacks would go one, two, and three. So going into this draft, obviously your concept was – you would you would have sort of your pick of whatever positional players that you would want at four. At what point in the process did you lock in, okay, we definitely want to go running back at four? Well, way back in, uh, in 
February when we discussed the planning for the coming season and the, the fact that we probably were going to have to move for reasons that had nothing to do with anything other than a lousy drafting of a contract that hurt us, not the player, um, we were going to have to move Marshall Falk. So um, we, uh, having done that, you know, we had to replace him. And the question is, how are you going to replace him? And that boiled down basically to two people, Ricky Williams and Edger and James. And we did our due diligence just exactly as we did with Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf uh, two years before, or the year before, I guess. And, uh, and uh, you know, along about April 1st, it was clear that Edger and James was the choice, and we were going to sit there and take him. We didn't think there was any chance that we'd lose him in front of us, and we thought there would be a huge chance we'd lose him behind us because people in the National Football League aren't stupid. They do their homework. Um, the media didn't know anything about him, but they don't know anything about anything anyway. So uh, <laughs> in, in the end, the, the, I, I'm referring to the draft now. I mean, it, they, they right. simply don't. They, uh, it, that's a fact. It's they're, they're they're just they're just there are no scouts, you know, doing well. Todd McShay is as close as you come. And I guess Daniel Jeremiah Jeremiah is pretty good on the NFL Network. I've not studied him, so I. But people tell me he is. Other than that, there are no people who have scouting background who are doing this. They're just reflecting what they hear from people in the NFL. And as I said, some of those sources are valuable and reliable and others are not. And, and, and there are plenty of sources as you get closer to the draft who have put out nothing but garbage to try and, to try and create chaos or, 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 or cause trouble for competitors. And so it's all part of the it's all part of the business. Um, so we, we didn't feel like we that Edgerman was was well known to the general public, and, and but we did feel like he was well known enough in the football community that that we we better take him or we'd lose him. So one question that we just wanted to jump into before we get into kind of the decision between uh, Williams versus James was, and this kind of came out of the last episode, you know, we talked a lot about uh, the toll carries and touches take on a professional career, but we wanted to kind of get into the other end. And we had a couple of questions from this, from, from uh, some of the internet questions in terms of how much of a factor did the total number of carries and touches in college and high school affect your perception of a running back prospect? For example, in the abstract, all things being relatively equal. And I think we know the answer to this, but I just wanted to clarify it. You would prefer potentially a player who had say 497 collegiate carries versus say 1,064. And is there a total number of carries and college that you get spooked by this is a complicated answer so i'm going to try and go step by step um first of all the, the so-called tread on the tire issue has not been proven in any meaningful way by data and i've asked in recent years if there is data out there and, and the people that know say there's not, nothing definitive. So um, the idea that a, a player who's had a heavy-duty career at the collegiate level would have a, a, uh, a proven ability to 
or proven lack of ability to have a sustained career, there's no data that proves that. Conversely, there's no data that proves otherwise. And conversely, there's no data that proves that a guy who had limited carries at the, at the, uh, at the college level um, is, you know, is, is, uh, has a better chance to succeed. So that idea, the so-called tread on the tire uh, baloney that we hear uh, over the air and in print is unproven. It's curbstone logic. It's like don't draft a running back in the first round. In fact, it's been proven otherwise. And that, that's totally false. But, but here, tread on the tire, we don't have any, we don't have any, any proof other than this. Uh, Washington's running back, uh, not Geis, but the, the guy that's been around a long time. I'm drawing a blank on the name right. Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson had a heavy workload coming out of Oklahoma. And he is still going strong for a long time. Conversely, Frank Gore missed time at Miami because of a horrendous injury and came out with an injury designation, and he's lasted a long, long time. So there is evidence, albeit small, that there's no validity to any of that tread on the tire uh, idea. But it, but it's a small sample size for obvious reasons. Backs don't last a long time. The average productive career for a running back in the National Football League, even the best of them, even the best of them, is six years in the modern salary cap era. Now, some of that may be due to um, salary cap constraints because there's a clear downturn in production after six years in the NFL. But um, there's no data that tells you that at the college level, a heavy workload mitigates against success at the NFL level. In fact, there's some, there's some data that, that it, albeit small sample size, that proves otherwise. Right. I mean, you'd see that it would seem like this is logically playing this out since there's no data the other way. A, you know, someone who has more carries, more touches, you know, you, ha you have a bigger sample size of what he could have done in college. And B, you know, he's proven that he can bear up under a load, right? And, and, and touch the ball X number of times a game and still be healthy the next week. Wouldn't, is that fair to say, Bill? That's correct. And, the, and there's other data that proves that the bigger the back, if, he's, if he has elite characteristics, the longer the chance he lasts. But again, there's not enough sample size to, to, to really put your thumb on it and say, yeah, this is, let's go with this. This is proven. It's, it's simply because there's not that many guys that last that long. It's just a very small sample size. When you also have guys like, let's look at Adrian for an example. Like, I would assume like a common media misconception is that if you run more upright, it makes you more susceptible to hits, those kinds of things. Ergo, your career would be shorter. Somebody like that runs upright, mauls people, and has been able to play at a high level for an unbelievable amount of time. Yeah, and and he could be he could be an anomaly. Uh, but you'll never know because there aren't enough people, you know, to right. compare them against. This, this we know for sure. This is what we know for sure. A back who's taken in the first round 
plays at a winning level in his first year 65% of the time. That's the highest uh, winning level performance of any position group in the draft. The lowest is, of course, quarterback at 32%. So, and, and that's, going, that's going all the way back to 1993. So, so the, the, the bottom line is that the best chance you have of having a player come in and impact your team, the so-called impact player, I nearly gag when I use that term, uh, is, is at running back. So draft a running back in the first round. By all means, if you're right on the assessment, he will help you right away. But don't give him a second contract because his production, every running back's production, with, with few exceptions, falls off pretty markedly uh, at, uh, at uh, six years. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be why also uh, so few running backs have ever really been successful for a second team to, that they play for. Yeah, well, there have been some, but but not a lot. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And the the more chance they have to be successful with a second team, the the better their avoid needs to be. And you can measure that. It is measured. So that's the data. That's what the data tells you. All right. Let, let's get back to the year in question. Let me let me just set the scene a little bit. And obviously, we know you 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 know you, you thought Edgerin was was the guy. But let let me lay out. You know the, some of the stuff that was out there about the two the two players. So <clears throat> with Ricky Williams, by any measure, he's an extraordinary athlete, right? He started football, baseball, track and field, and wrestling in high school um, at Texas. He had the, a record-setting year in uh, at division the Division One A level of six thousand two hundred and seventy-nine yards. He was the AP Player of the Year. He won the Maxwell Award. Uh, as the outstanding amateur athlete, he won the Walter Camp Award and the Heisman Trophy. His measurables, as we talked about. With All the- right, let me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you right there. I, I'm, I'm going to be like a congressman. I can't let a misleading testimony enter the record. <laughs> uh, for the record. For, first of all, the awards mean absolutely nothing. They're voted on by sports writers. And all you need to do is look at the Heisman Trophy voting and know how, how much it's prejudiced by, by uh, section of the country, uh, where the candidates come from, media perception. There are people who vote for the Heisman Trophy who literally do not see a college football game. So the awards mean absolutely nothing. In any draft room I've ever been in, for as long as I've been involved with football, the awards mean absolutely nothing. So that's point one. Point two, if you sat, as I have for close to 40 years, in draft meetings and listened to the personnel director or the area scout give the profile of the player, I'm guessing here it's anecdotal, but it's anecdotal with a huge sample size. Uh, close to 40 years of drafting, so that's 100 players per year on the board. That's 40, that minimum of 4,000 players. That's a pretty big sample size. 
you would see, especially at the skill positions, that an overwhelming majority of players, even in today's game, even today where there's specialization at the high school level, the overwhelming majority are all three-sport athletes. If they're not three-sport athletes, you ask a question, why isn't this guy a three-sport athlete? That's a re- it's an orange flashing light. So the fact that he was a, you know, won so many letters at the high school, Ricky did, or any other person did, is immaterial. Well, I, I knew that one was going to be red meat for you. Uh, just let me follow up on, on one of the last things you said, because I'm interested. Bill, you know, and you and I have talked about this for years, though. You know, it's changed a little bit for, you know, the reason that parents are. No, it has not. It has not. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about pick, picking them. What I'm saying is, what about the kids who are specializing by the time they're 10 years the old? The great athletes who are drafted do not specialize. That's the point. Right. They're all multi-sport athletes. The parents are wrong, actually. If you want to, if if you want to try and develop your son or daughter into a uh, competitive, high-level athlete who's going to get a college scholarship and maybe have a chance to play professionally, uh, I and many, many, many hundreds of others say, let them play multiple sports. Don't specialize including Jim Andrews, one of the foremost orthopedic surgeons and experts on uh, players' arms in the world, says that overuse is absolutely proven to be a way for young uh, pitchers to break down. So that's another myth. That's been, that's, now, do people believe in it and probably hurt their kids in the process? Yes. Yeah, but I, totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it is one of the worst things that has happened uh, in amateur sports in my lifetime, uh, I think that the parents are doing it for all the wrong reasons. I think, you know, injuries. Uh, also, you and I have talked about, you know, when you when you learn how to, to, to box out a guy in basketball, you learn how to block the passing lane, you learn how to play defense for football, too. It's all geometry. So they're denying the kid the opportunity to, to uh, keep his body healthier, and they're denying their kids the opportunity to learn you know, what they can transfer from one sport to the other. So it's a terrible, terrible idea. And thank you for saying that. Uh, so let me move on to something you do believe in. Measurables. Here's, here's what I, we had for Ricky Williams. Five, ten and a half, 244 pounds, a 40-time of 4.56, a 10-yard split at 1.61, and a 20-yard at 2.5. Six two. What did you? Okay, let me let me let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. Those numbers, those numbers are incorrect. Uh, the numbers that we had were very much higher for the forty yard dash, very much higher for the uh, ten. These were taken at his workout in San Diego. Uh, higher for the forty yard dash, uh, higher for the ten split. Um, I, I don't recall what the what the the uh, uh, triangle drill was, but the the figures you quoted are very much lower than what we had, significantly so. So, uh, you know, in doing our research for this, obviously we looked at um, multiple uh, sources. Where does this bad information come from? I mean, why is it floating around? Agents, 
from from agents to begin with. From you, Rick. Rick, you are singularly responsible, singularly responsible for this level of bad data, and you're promoting it on the podcast. <laughs> I I tell you that I never. I bang my fist on the table and talk louder and say I never. It's an accountability Monday, Rick, and we're holding you accountable. Uh, you know, you know, I walk into this thing in good faith, and look what happens. Forget everything I said. Let's go to this question. Tell me what you saw as Ricky Williams' strength and weaknesses. He he had great strength. Um, he had ability to build up speed over distance. Um, he he certainly uh, could carry a heavy load, so he had a lot of stamina. He got the ball a lot. Um, we didn't have any real feel for him in the passing game and didn't work him out, so that was a question mark. Um, the Obviously, the yardage, uh, the gross yardage was, uh, was a big number, but we went back and looked at all of the tape, so-called touch tape, and... Uh, and what we found was that a great deal of that yardage was made against less than top flight competition. And and much of it was made beyond the second level. He had a lot of long runs, you know, 40, 50, 60 yard runs, which you don't get in the National Football League, uh, simply because the players are faster, bigger, and, and there's more um, there's more uh, pursuit uh, than there is at the college level. Um, But the biggest thing that we, the biggest negative was that there was not the acceleration in the hole that we needed to run our offense effectively because the outside stretch play, the outside zone play uh, was the bedrock of our running game. And in order to do that, the running back had to take the ball geared down, read the opening, accelerate at, at from zero to 60 in one step, get through the hole, make somebody on the second level miss and, and in order to get chunk plays out of the running game, which is 12-plus yards. Um, so he lacked that. That was a that was the number one physical um difference between he and Edger. And then there were many other issues that cropped up that we weren't comfortable with. But that was the biggest difference. Edgerin also had been heavily involved in the or involved enough in the passing game at Miami that we had no questions at all about his hands. And his ability to his ability to get involved in the passing game. Yeah. So, you know, uh was there somebody uh you, you've talked about this. That's excuse me, excuse me, saying that's reflected by what, by the way, by the ten times, um, Edgerin's even this, the numbers that you have, which are accurate for Edgerin, um, are. It, it, I mean, there's a huge disparity between Ricky and the ten and and Edgerin and the ten. Mm-hmm. So even if he could do what he did well, he really couldn't do all the things that someone needed to do to fit your offensive scheme. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Was is there anybody um 
you know, he's obviously a, a, a terrific college football player. Is there is there anybody uh, sort of a comp who he reminded you of who, yes, he could do these things, but he couldn't do these, and therefore, you know, looking back, there was somebody who you saw over their career who he reminded you of? Eddie George, but it, it turned out that Eddie – Eddie was uh, much faster to the hole on the watch than uh, than he looked. He was a long strider, which is rare among running backs. But he had he also had terrific uh, ability to make people miss. He had a lot. Eddie had a lot of a void. Um, uh, so, I mean that, that sort of the body type. The same Eddie was not two forty four. I don't believe the body type was similar, but but uh, you guys won't remember this guy. But Eddie was a faster version of Alex Webster with the Giants. Uh, but um, I can't think of, of anybody off the top of my head and didn't then. But I, you know, we were we were trying to de- to determine between the two who would best fit us. So we weren't really looking at comparisons. Yeah, right, right. Um, now, you, you made a little reference to this, and it's something, so I want to get at about other issues with Ricky. So we've talked about uh, uh, the psychologist you had on the team who was giving very uh, sophisticated testing and really was in charge of that area. So Ricky is clearly an intelligent guy. Uh, but he ultimately would be diagnosed clinically with social anxiety, uh, borderline personality, and avoidance disorders. Um, and he also, of course, had a very independent worldview where if he was going to live his life the way he wanted to live his life, uh, not the way the NFL or anybody else you know, would tell him what, what he should do. So when, they were, when you were administering the psychological test, are they set up to actually reveal and diagnose this kind of illness? And if so, were you did you did you realize that that this was lurking inside Ricky Williams at this point in time? No, they're not set up to do that. They're not set up to do that at all. They're set up to to determine based on a series of norms that we together with the psychologist have developed that tells us these are the kind of personalities that succeed in the National Football League and succeed in our organization specifically. Um, they're set up on three levels. Let me backtrack. The first level is pro- professional sports in general, since our psychologist, Dana Sinclair, did other uh, did hockey and baseball. We had a pretty good uh, a pretty good basis of, of knowledge as to as what to what it took to succeed, um, generally speaking, and then specifically to the National Football League and then specifically to our team. Three levels uh, of, of measurement of personality traits. It, it's not designed to, um, to elicit a diagnosis under any circumstances. So, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about red flags. Um, you're not you're not relying on that would be more sort of um what had happened in the past from a behavioral standpoint you'd be relying on for the red flag you're not really trying to uh 
delve deeply into the psyche of the person as to, you know, potential issues that he would have. It's really just about competitiveness, right? Oh, no, no. There are a great many more areas that you delve into. Uh, Self-control, aggressiveness, um, teamwork, leadership, drive, all of those, work ethic, all of those kinds of things are measured. It's quite sophisticated and quite broad-ranging, but it does not attempt to diagnose anybody under no circumstances. There are enough red flags to worry you. Plus, plus evidence that came from from those that worked with him at the at the at the University of Texas that he was certainly different than the average player in terms of how he needed to be coached and what you needed to do with him and things like that. So, uh, clinician, the clinician aspect aside, you know, you're, you've always been a pretty perceptive person about people and about human nature. Uh, when you met with him, tell, t- tell us about the meeting with him and, and the vibe and what you took away from it. Well, there was very little to it. Um, his agent, by the way, his agent his listed agent was a, a rapper named Master P who I think I, I may have shaken hands with once at a social function somewhere, but never had a discussion with, never talked with him. He was represented by another gentleman, a lawyer who, who I guess worked in, Mr. in Master P's organization, who was a very nice and very forthcoming and, and, very professional. I can't remember his name right now, but uh, he was really a, you know, he was a, a, a nice guy and, and very easy to work with. And so uh, when it came time to bring Ricky in for his visit, he said that Ricky's very uncomfortable in crowds. He's very uncomfortable in, in sort of official settings. Um, I'm paraphrasing now. So it would be better if we just did this over dinner. And and he's very uncomfortable in public places. So we said, okay, tell you what, we'll cater a dinner in at, at our facility and, uh, and we'll just have you and he and the head coach and the coordinator and the backfield coach and myself and the personnel director. How's that? And, uh, and he said, that's fine. So we did exactly that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Ricky met briefly with Coach Mora and, and with um, Tom Moore and Gene Huey, the offensive backfield coach, but it was just kind of high, how do you do? They didn't put him on the chalkboard or anything like that. We came inside, um, the, sat down at the table, the, the the uh, we had the meal catered, so it was you know done in a first class manner, uh, just as you would get at a high end restaurant. Uh, the salad was served. Um, I think they they asked for a specific menu, if I'm not mistaken, but it, that's neither here nor there. We, we, we took care of it, and um, and then after about halfway through the first course, Ricky excused himself and never came back. So. All I said essentially was, hello, 
And that was the, you know, how you doing? And that was the extent of it. Um, he went out and sat in the, the limousine for the remainder of the dinner. And we talked with the agent who was very nice. And, and at one point he got up and went out and talked to Ricky and said, Ricky feels nothing against you. He's just really uncomfortable and would rather stay in the car. And we said, okay, that's fine. No problem. Yeah, sort of a complicated, complicated interview process. I mean, let's be honest. That's easily one of the most unusual. Have you ever had anything like that happen even remotely close or since? No, but we but we didn't we didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, it, it, it was it was a, a, a yellow light, but not a not a red flag. We didn't make it. You know, we didn't make a big deal out of it. It was not something that. That caused us to say, absolutely not, we're not taking this player. Because the agent was quite honest about the fact that he was very uncomfortable in crowds and very uncomfortable in public settings and things of that nature. So we just accepted it. it you know, not every player's not every player's Frank Merriwell. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, not every player walks in with a briefcase and a notepad and interviews you for 25 minutes as Peyton Manning did. Right. It's just so the world is made up of different kinds of people and we're asking them to play football, not to be congressmen. In fact, it's a good thing that the congressman would based on recent experience would be a bad thing to have anywhere, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So in in terms of crowds, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, he's he's okay in front of 100,000 people, but it's obviously these intimate settings, which is you're pointing out. other than maybe being in the huddle, uh, that really doesn't have anything to do with football. Yeah, it doesn't. And and keep in mind, I was talking to a high-level athlete the other day who from another sport who asked me, uh, you know, do the players hear the crowd in football? And I said, not really, unless they're on the bench. They hear it on the bench. Uh, but they, but in the huddle, no. They're, first of all, the call is amplified. And second of all, they're concentrating on the jobs. And what you hear is what every athlete who's ever played at the college level, big or small, knows is that you hear a buzz. That's what the crowd is to you, a buzz. It's not. It's sometimes a louder buzz than other times, but you don't react to it. So it's very. it would be, it would be a very different situation than being in a social setting, completely different. Yeah, exactly. I just, I, that's what I've always heard from guys, exactly the same. Um, so... Just a, a, uh, this is going to be another red meat question for you, Bill. So, even though they are they are irrelevant to the actual uh, product on the field, when you when a when a team is given the opportunity to face to pick someone uh, with all those kinds of awards and all that kind of acclaim, uh, and even if it's not going to influence you, do you get? Anything from the other side of the company, so to speak, the PR people, the guys who are trying to sell season tickets, saying, "God, we we got to draft this guy because he's going to, you know, make headlines and and move a lot of tickets for us." Do, do they even approach you with that, or are they or are they too intimidated to do that? I don't know if I'd use the word intimidated, but but no, no one's ever approached me about that. Ownership has asked about it on, you know. And rare occasions, um, which is a you know certainly a valid question to ask, um, 
it's more prevalent with coaches uh, than it is with players, unless the player were a hometown player. Um, but no, I've never had anybody come to me and say, you know, we'd really like you to take uh, Ryan Leaf because he'll sell more tickets than Peyton Manning. And and, they, and truth, truthfully, my views on that subject are, are, are have been pretty public from the time I became a general manager. So uh, people probably felt they were barking up the wrong tree anyway by raising the issue. Yeah, that's why I said intimidated. Maybe that was the wrong word, but, <laughs> you know, but maybe fruitless or pointless or whatever. Yeah, fr- fr- fruitless and pointless are <laughs> are probably good words. All right. Better ways of putting it. Let the record reflect fruitless and pointless. But this is the dinner where you probably became a huge fan of Master P, the rapper. Well, he wasn't there. Don't forget he wasn't there. This was the, the agent. Oh, this this is the attorney. The lawyer, yeah. He's yeah. the lawyer. I never I never laid eyes on Master P. But did this get you into Master P? No, no, no. <laughs> but now, wait a minute. While we're at it, do we just want to jump on me today for being a lawyer as well? Go ahead, Scott. Get some wise guys. No, totally good. No, we're we're moving into now musical taste. So you know we'll we'll, we'll hammer Bruce Springsteen later. That's it's a sacrilege. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let let's jump into Edge. So I think our our measurables for Edge out of the combine are probably closer to more accurate. So uh, in our research, we found him at six even, two twenty, a forty time, and I was I was surprised that uh by this i did not remember he was this fast was a 438 a 10 yard at 14 and a 20 yard at 244 uh how impressively fast of an athlete was edgerin yeah we didn't have 438 but but suffice it to say as as we often said it was fast enough it, it was well below the line so so uh he uh he could run there's no two ways about that so uh, his his numbers were markedly better than than Ricky's, and Ricky worked out late for some reason. Didn't work out at the combine. I don't recall meeting him at. The, I'm certain we didn't meet him at the combine, um, and and he worked out um, very late in the in the process, maybe in March, late in March in San Diego. So the exposure to him was limited. Um, in Edge's case, we'd had a lot of exposure to him anyway via film and in person, because he was a guy that was high on our radar from the time, uh, you know, the time the season began, and um, and the numbers were real. I mean, that's what they are, and and the, and the ten time proves that what our eyes saw, which was great acceleration in the hole and great ability to. To get to the second level and make people miss was uh, his his triangle drill was you know was below seven, which is what you want. And then the the key thing for us, and I I, I was reminded of this by a former colleague um, the other day, who told me a funny story about educating his scouting staff about it. Um, funny to me, maybe not so funny to them. <laughs> he said. Uh, you know, I told him, hey, the old man said if a guy is not 4.5 yards or better, uh, five yards or better as a collegiate runner, if he doesn't average five yards or better, don't talk about him. 
because he's going to average <laughs> 4.5 or better in the National Football League. And if he does it over a career, he'll make it in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I said, well, I'm a little – I guess I have to admit that I'm old now, but I'm a little <laughs> – chagrined at being called the old man and he said well wait it gets better <laughs> if, if a guy if a guy didn't average four point uh, five point oh and carry the first words out of the old man's mouth was why are we talking about this guy <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well you know it's pretty good I I, uh, I think our listeners have, have have heard enough of you to know that that's exactly what he would have said. <laughs> so with Edge, what did you think of Edge as a player, as an athlete coming out of Miami? A uh, superior athlete, um, really, really, really good player. Uh, first round talent. You didn't have to see much film to see that. Highly competitive, uh, smart football player. Uh, knew the game. Um, a natural at his position, which is what you want in a running back. For those of, of our listeners who don't even remember Edgerin, which is, I'm sure there are many of them, um, think Saquon Barkley, that that's what Edgerin looked like. Think Zeke, that's what Edgerin looked like. As a matter of fact, um, Jason Garrett said to me uh, when Zeke was coming out, who does he remind you of? I said Edgerin. You know that, that's that's what Edge looked like when he was when he was coming out. Maybe not as powerful as Zeke, but everything else the same. So clearly an elite first round, high first round, game changing running back. Who did he remind you? Who did Edger remind you of as a comp? Was there a comp that you kind of had on Edgerin? It wasn't Thurman. You know, he didn't. He was first of all, he was a lot, he was bigger than Thurman. Um, I can't know. I can't. I can't give you one right off the top of my head. Uh, but it was clear that that he had that that rare ability. And then, from a scheme for perspective, he was ideal for what you guys were trying to do offensively, right? Yeah, exactly. Because if you think in terms of running the stretch play, you're running at the the outside hip of the offensive tackle, which is a long run for, for a one back running back who's lined up in the dot you know, behind the quarterback. So you're going from, you're going almost seven yards to the outside hip of the, of the tackle. And then you have to read because it's zone blocking. You have to read where the daylight is coming from, where, where does somebody win the battle and, and create a crease uh, and create daylight. So when you read that, you have to be able to stick your foot in the ground and go from zero to 60 in one step to get through the hole before some pursuit or, or the, 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 the uh, offensive lineman who's created the crease can't hold it any longer. So you got to be able to get there, get in and out. That's the term, get in and out quickly. And then you have to be able to avoid tacklers on the second level or run through them. Ricky could run through them at the college level. He not you're never going to run through them on a regular basis at the NFL level. Uh, so you, you you put more value on a void um, than than you really do flat out power in an every down running back. Uh, now, you know the kid in Tennessee right now 
he's a he's a rare power guy. He can run through him, but you're not going to do that for a whole career. Um, right. It just it, it just you know avoid is the ability to make people miss it, it, is is a much more translatable skill. And so Edgerin had that as well, and and that's what leads to those chunk plays. If you hit the hole quickly, you'll get four. If you uh, if you're able to avoid or even run through the second level, now you got a chance to get eight, ten, twelve. It, it, you certainly can get eight if you can finish, and you have you, you have uh, balance, which is running through contact. Um, then you have a chance to get twelve or twelve plus, which is which is what you need to win games. You have to get you know, four or so, five or so, six or so of those plays out of your running game in every game to win. How did he, tying back to the last episode, I'm assuming he was a much better blocker, but how did he compare to Marshall Falk? Oh, much better, much better. Because he could, he could stand up a linebacker. You know, what you ask the running back to do is to step up about two and a half to three yards from the line of scrimmage. So that's about three and a half yards from where he's aligned. Step up, take on a blitzing linebacker before that linebacker gets a full head of steam and stop him in his tracks. Now you have to have punch to do that. You have to have power to do it. You have to have balance to do it. And uh, and he could. Marshall just didn't have either the height nor the, the girth to do that. He was willing but you, but guys who don't have height or girth will typically cut block. They'll go it below the knees of the of the uh, on rushing linebacker. Uh, but if that's the case, that guy is crawling around the ankles and feet of of your quarterback. And if you miss a cut, the guy's got a free run at the quarterback. So and and he's he's already in a nasty mood and he's even in a nastier mood when you try to cut him. They don't like to get cut. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> it, it's you know it, it's it, you don't make a living cutting at the college level. They do. They make a living cutting at the college level. They they allow it and and not not that it's not allowed in the NFL, but it's there are a lot of teams that don't allow their backs to cut in the NFL for the reasons I described. At the college level, they teach cutting. Uh, and so they can play with smaller backs. That's okay. That's fine. Uh, but they're not protecting a guy who just got paid $100 million either. Right. Right. I mean, that's one of the trickier things. So, I mean, how much of uh, running back blocking? Because, I mean, total fan question here, but we hear it all the time, like that the running back's ability to block is the thing that sort of ultimately separates and makes you a thir- three-down player is that something that sort of these, these guys come with as almost a finished product? Is that a skill that can be taught and learned if you have the right frame for it? Oh, no. You, you got to – they don't come as a finished product ever because they never, they, never, they never have to block against Lawrence Taylor or Dwight Freeney or Robert Mathis at the college level rarely. Those guys are always double teamed at the college level. There's not two of them on one team. (laughs) So if they are, it's the national championship team. You know, it's probably Alabama, but even Alabama doesn't have two in most years. So, so, you know, you, you, they don't face that level of competition. Number one, number two, again, 
they're allowed to cut a lot of times at the college level. Now, Nick doesn't allow his guys to cut because he's been in the National Football League and knows, you know, why you don't do that. But lots of times at the college level, they allow him to cut. And then there are certain offenses at the college level where they will redu- they'll release five all the time. And, and, and they'll allow the free rusher to come and, and hope that the quarterback avoids him. It's on the quarterback to avoid them. Uh, now, I won't mention the coach, nor the nor the team, nor the player. But there's a famous story, which I know is true because I heard it from the player, where a coach came in and and had come from the college level and 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 said, you know, uh, they were diagramming a protection, and the quarterback said, "Wait a minute, who's got uh, who's got the middle linebacker?" As a as a in the old days, we used to say, who's got Sam Huff, you know? And, right. <laughs> and, 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 the, uh, and, the, and the coach said, oh, we'll let him go, just get rid of the ball. <laughs> and the quarterback said, no, no, that's not the way it works. That's not what I'm going to do. You better, find, you better have somebody pick him up. <laughs> it's too funny. All right. Well, our discussion in 99 would be remiss if we didn't hit this one topic. Uh, going into the draft, Mike Ditka famously stated that he would trade his entire draft and then some to move up to get Ricky Williams. He had actually said the same thing the year before in reference to Peyton Manning. Obviously, we know that didn't work out. Two-parter, did you take uh, Ditka seriously, and did you have any conversations with the Saints about them moving up to four and maybe you guys moving back to 12? Billy Q. Herrick is a friend of mine and has been a friend of mine for a long time. And um, and so we may have had discussions about it, but we weren't going to go back to 12. And I, I'm certain I told him that because we were very certain we'd lose Edgerin if, if we went back to 12. And Edgerin was our pick. He's the guy we wanted. And there are, uh, I, you know, I'm making light of, of all of the Falderall and myths that surround the draft. But here's, here's one that's true. Um, first of all, Tony Dungy gave voice to this, but it's really something that I knew and believed beforehand because everybody I'd ever worked with believed it. If you're in the top 10, you, you're best served to get somebody who scores touchdowns, who throws touchdowns, who catches touchdowns, or who sacks the quarterback, or at any other position can absolutely dominate the game against any opponent. So that, when you're at four, as Dave Gettleman said uh, when he drafted Saquon Barkley, you hope that you're getting a guy who plays 10 years, and you really hope you're getting a guy who's going to get a gold jacket. And and I think that's that's true. So when you have identified a guy who meets that standard, why would you ever entertain trading back? I've never understood it. I've never understood it. I know the analytics guys say do it, but you know, they're analytics guys. They don't their their name is not attached to the pick when 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 that guy fails, it, it doesn't. It, it, it people don't report that the analytics department of the Indianapolis Colts got it wrong. 
they say the GM got it wrong. Yeah. Right. So uh, the end result is that if you have a conviction on a guy in the top 10, it's for the right reasons. Remember, I have preached from day one, and I've said it on more than a few occasions on this show. If we're going to be wrong, let's be wrong for the right reasons. You know, if you've, you can always be wrong. You can always be wrong. And you, and you can, and, and fate may intervene. But if you've made the pick for the right reasons, if you have a conviction and you've given it the litmus test, the Bunsen burner test, then make the pick. Don't think about trading back. But even as you evaluate that, to go back to 12 would have been fruitless, you know, crazy. We, we would not have had Edger in at 12. And there was no one else that, it, that we felt as strongly about as Edger. And also, people have always said to me, do you draft for need or do you draft best player available? The answer is neither. When the need line crosses the player line, you know, the elite player line, take that player every single time and don't look back. And that's what we were faced with with Edger. So this is one sort of off book, but I just I'm curious. So given that you were spending a lot of that off season kind of looking at defense and building defense, and obviously up into this point there there's been two gold jacket guys in the top ten picks of this draft. Did you think about anything else at four? Did you think about Champ Bailey maybe at four at corner? Yeah, we did. Yes. Yes, we did. But we felt like the you know, you want somebody in the top 10 who's going to intercept the ball, turn it over. I neglected to mention that in the in the definition. Thanks for reminding me. But we, we just felt that the need at running back was so strong that, you know, as much as we love champ, uh, that that the uh, the need was so strong that um, we decided to go with Edrin. Champ would, would have been our second choice. Yeah, but, you know, but the whole – uh, that Marshall Falk left. I mean, you had to fill that. I mean, you can't. How do you, how do you have to get your offense without that, right? Well, you had to fill the hole. The question was, how were you, how were you going to fill it? And and so, the you know, the answer was, Edger and James is staring you in the face. Go ahead and take him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so uh, as it turns out, though it didn't involve you uh, or the Colts, uh, Dedka and our good friend Billy Kuharik, uh, who was the GM in New Orleans at the time, uh, did make that trade. Uh, although they didn't trade the whole, they did actually retain, they did actually retain one pick, uh, contrary to, to popular notion. Uh, what did you think of the trade at that time, though? That, that, you know, basically trading the majority of your draft for one guy? Well, well, just so everybody has it on record, that trade would be the Saints would trade their one, three, four, five, and six, and seven in '99, and their one and three in 2000 to the f- team formerly known as the Washington Redskins. Well, the two, first of all, the two picks, the two ones, uh, I thought were a high pl- price to play. They retained their two twos, so that made sense. Uh, but they gave up the second three the second year. So of the premium picks, essentially Ricky Williams cost them two ones and two threes. That's four players who should help you. Um, You know, that guy better 
without question be a gold jacket for you to to make that kind of a pick. Uh, now, you know, the the other picks they gave up are not meaningless because if you draft well, you'll get a couple of players in every year out of the picks four through seven. Um, so they're, they're, they're not corned beef hash, but they're nowhere near as valuable as one through three. So they gave up two ones and two threes uh, with, with a lot of sweetener um, to get Ricky Williams. I mean, that's, that's a pretty high price. Billy, I spoke to him about this last week. Uh, he still, to some degree, defends this, uh, makes arguments in terms of who, who they were able to retain with those two picks, uh, and felt like if certain things had happened, it really would have could have very well worked out. It's not something that he uh, terribly regrets um, at, the, at this point. Uh, let me let me uh, talk about that those kind of trades. Let me talk about a couple of historic, uh, similar similarly historic trades. One was my old client Herschel Walker, who got traded to the Vikings for five players and six picks. Uh, now uh, Dallas used those players and picks, who they got for that was Emmett Smith, Darren Woodson, Russell Maryland, Kevin Smith, uh, Isaac Holt, and Jesse Solomon. The other pick in my mind, the other trade in my mind that is similar, and this goes back a much longer way, Bill, uh, was Pete Roselle trading nine players for Ali Method. This is when Pete, the future commissioner, was the GM of the Los Angeles Rams, and he, uh, and he was going – uh, after Ali Matson, who had been the great player at uh, University of San Francisco, where Pete at the time uh, was the sports information director. And interestingly, there's also a Kuharik involved here because Billy's father, Joe Kuharik, was the was the coach of that team. Uh, and there are a lot of remarkable stories about that team, which I hope we can get into sometime. But still, these kind of asymmetric, lopsided trades, in your mind, do they ever work? Back in the day, when you were when you were running teams, would you have ever been so uh, desirous of one player that you would have given up the, that magnitude of opportunity? It's an interesting question. Let's look at the two trades because they're they're, they're totally different trades when you analyze them. I told you about um, having dinner with Pete prior to the championship game or um, the playoff game in, in 19, I guess it was 1989 um, or 88. I can't remember the, the, the date right now. And, and, the, and the first thing he said to me when he got in the car, we were driving him out to the country club of Buffalo where the dinner was. And he said, you know, Bill, I was a general manager. I said, yes, commissioner, I knew that. And he said, you know, I made the Ollie Matson trade. And I said, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> and I said, tell me about it. So he proceeded to tell me all about it, which was uh, which was really a lot of fun. Um, they got Matson, if I recall correctly, from the Chicago Cardinals. And 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 here's his rationale for it. And it's and it's correct. And it's interesting. There's an interesting juxtaposition, which which will actually come to fruition tomorrow. The Rams scouting system uh, started by Dan Reeves, their owner, when they moved to Los Angeles in 1949, 
uh, was the most sophisticated in football. And they had the first full-time scout, a guy named Eddie Cotell, who scoured the country, including HBCUs, uh, for players that nobody else knew about. Uh, He was the first scout. They had the first scouting system. It was functional. Tex Schramm was there. Tex took it to Dallas, and Gil Brandt expanded on it. Um, And then, uh, so the Rams every year would draft awfully well, and they would have excess talent. Don't forget, there were only 33 roster spots in those days. And so they would have excess talent. So Pete said we had, what I did was trade excess talent at virtually every position because we had, they had a, Rams were a strong contending team with Bob Waterfield and then Norm Van Brocklin at quarterback, Crazy Lakes, Hirsch, Tank Younger, you know, name after name that's in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, and so uh, they, Pete felt he was trading guys who would not make their team to get Ole Matson, who he knew and, and, and had at the University of San Francisco, who had really game-breaking ability. So that was the rationale for the trade. And, and you know, if you look at it as a general manager, it's, it's a good, solid rationale. Now, the Dallas-Minnesota trade, in my view, and Commissioner Tagliabue gets mad at me when I say this, but in my view should have been disallowed because it literally was the Brinks robbery of professional sports. Um, (laughs) Mike Lynn, the man who made the trade on the Vikings behalf, had no background whatsoever in professional sports. His background had been in running movie theaters. And like most people who come into professional sports from the business world, they think they can transfer the skills. And they all think they're football people. George Allen once said to me, keep in mind, whenever you come to work, everybody else in the building thinks they're a football man and they want to be a football man. He's absolutely right. He was absolutely right. So uh, Mike Lynn had no background in football and decided that he was going to make this trade. And so when the trade was reported, Bob Ferguson, who was then our pro personnel director and assistant GM and who later became GM of both the Denver Broncos and, and uh, Arizona Cardinals, um, came into my office. He said, you're not going to believe this trade. So I said, what is it? So he explained it to me. It's Herschel Walker to the Vikings for, um, you know, Six players from Dallas, all of whom were somewhat media. You, you, you called fair to Midland players, no all pros. So I said, well, man, that's a lopsided trade. But, you know, Dallas really isn't get, giving up anything. And, 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 you know, I guess Minnesota gets Herschel. He said, wait, there's a kicker here. The kicker is that if Dallas does not keep the players uh, that they got from uh, Minnesota, then they get commensurate draft choices. 
And in some cases, two years worth of draft choices. I said, what? (laughs) You know full well that Dallas is going to cut the players. They'll use them this year and then cut them and pick up almost an entire draft. Two years worth of premium picks. The league can't allow this. This is far worse than the so-called sale of Vita Blue that Charlie Finley uh, uh, tried to execute in baseball. And Bowie Kuhn, then the commissioner, said, no, this is not in the best interest of the game. I'm not going to allow it. And and he ended up getting rid of Vita Blue, but not in the lopsided trade that he that 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 he had concocted. And uh, so I said, the commissioner's got to step in and stop this. And so we made a few calls to the league personnel department, and they said, "There's we we, we don't have any grounds to stop." It. I said, "How about incompetence? You know, <laughs> <laughs> how about the guy on the Minnesota end?" Doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's bankrupting the franchise, for God's sake. <laughs> and so they ironically enough, <laughs> this of course was Jimmy Johnson and, and, and Jerry Jones in, in Dallas at the time. Ironically enough, Tex Fram had ma- famously said and was very often quoted by Football men in the NFL, you can't legislate against stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not that, that doesn't just apply in football. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be going around. It, it was not in relation to this trade. I think Tex had long le- had left the, the Cowboys to go to the World League of American Football at the time. But the fact of the matter is that Jimmy and and Jerry fleeced the Vikings. Uh, and in a way that actually helped really build their dynasty in in, in Dallas. It, on, on their end, it was a phenomenal trade. On the Vikings' end, it was just a disaster. <laughs> Remember, uh, maybe you don't know this, but when you when you negotiated uh, with Jeff uh, with uh, Mike Lynn, Jeff Dynasty's successor. Uh, you know, he had a whole different way of, of valuing players and negotiating than anybody I've ever heard of. And I guess it was some thing he took from some business that he had, he had been in where he creates this tree. And it, and it doesn't matter the position. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it was the craziest thing I had ever. It happened to work sort of in my favor, the one, the one deal I did with him. But to say that Mike was not a standard uh, football guy is, is the height of understatement. Well, whatever tree he had fell in Brooklyn and, and, and in Minnesota as well, because it, it really ham, hamstrung what was a great franchise for, for a long period of time. Yeah. The, and the only other memory that you, uh, you brought up uh, when you mentioned was Vita Blue for Aqua Velva Ice Blue. You remember that one, right, Phil? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> And Charlie Finley, I mean, this is a football show, but man, we could do a program on him sometime. Well, for those for those listeners, Vita Blue was an outstanding pitcher for the uh, for the Oakland Athletics. Charlie Finley owned the Oakland Athletics. He was a uh, he he was off the beaten path to say the least. In many ways, a visionary uh, marketer, but uh, 
you know, they, they actually built a very, very strong baseball team with Reggie Jackson, among others. Most sports fans know that game, Sal Bando, uh, Rick Monday, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, uh, that's the, that, that's the uh, genealogy of it. That's who Charlie Finley and Vita Blue were. Yes, uh, and, and a catfish hunter who had nothing to do with catfish. Yeah, that's right. Charlie, Charlie Finley <laughs> made up the name on the spot because he wanted to have a cool nickname. But the... <laughs> so you know that yeah that that he, he was as interesting uh an owner but reggie jackson himself i gotta i gotta tell this one uh there was a year one of the years when they were going to the world series where the talk uh around sports was that sal bando who was the third baseman was the most underrated player in baseball and you heard it again and again and again sal bando is the most underrated guy sal bando so they go to Reggie Jackson, sort of deep into this, and they say, Reggie, what do you think about Sal Bando? He goes, I think Sal Bando is the most overrated, underrated player. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so anyway, just to finish that story, um, uh, there is, again, a popular notion that uh, that trade cost uh, Mike Ditka and Billy, Billy Guharic, their jobs. Uh, Billy does not believe that. Uh, he says it wasn't the trade. He's, he said if the ball had bounced a, a couple different ways in a few games and uh, they would have had a couple more wins, he thinks uh, they would have stayed. And uh, so that he doesn't blame the trade uh, for ending his tenure down there uh, in New Orleans, uh, where he would be replaced by uh, another friend of mine, Randy Mueller. So, uh, but so we'll we'll, uh, we'll close the chapter on that trade now. What, what, but one more. So when you see the actual hall, does it make you double take it all, Bill? In terms of the uh, of the trade, yeah, what the uh, the Washington Football Club got. Um. Yeah, I mean it, it does. I thought it was. I I, I thought it was um, a little too rich, but you know, again, the fourth through seventh round picks are not as valuable as as one, two, and three. And we, we knew that. That's something that's only been, uh, you know, analytics people have have now proven that it's true. I don't know why they have to prove it. It's it's, it's a fact and was a fact then. So, but point, point of fact, that was window dressing, although it's a lot to give up, you know, in terms of, of stocking your team. It, it just looked like it was, in my view, a little too much. The two ones and two threes, I thought, were, you know, a, a little, a little excessive. Right. But you know, more power, more power to Washington for getting it. Hey, it turned into Champ Bailey and Lavar, so you yep. know, could have they did okay. Yep. Charlie did okay. With they did them. okay, indeed. All right, they got the other gold jacket guy. So I mean, you got to give them something. Yeah, they did. Charlie's a good friend, and 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 you know he knows he knows what he was doing, knew what he was doing. Even though we would later trade him, as we tend to do these things here in DC, for a <laughs> running back and a second, and we gave up a second round pick. But hey, whatever. I digress. I love CP, but 
Uh, I would never have done that deal. Uh, so that brings us to the conclusion of this episode's tale. With the fourth selection in the 99 draft, you would obviously select future Hall of Famer Edron James uh, over Heisman winning uh, Heisman Trophy winning uh, Ricky Williams. Um, what was the media reaction when you had taken Edron over Ricky? And then what was the reaction in the building? And then I think there is a, a pretty funny uh, story about uh, some keys being tossed in Tom Telesco's direction. <laughs> well, the, the reaction was overwhelmingly negative from the fans. Um, our publicity director came into the room after we made the, the pick and said, the phones are ringing off the hook, and they have been for two days because of the trade of Marshall. But now, it, it, to, to say that the reaction is universally negative is an understatement. And he said, you should know when you go out to talk to the media, they're, 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 they're loaded for bear. They're ready to tear <laughs> you apart. Yeah. I said, well, it's okay. No problem. Uh, you know, we'll deal with it. We picked the right guy. And uh, and so <laughs> he left the room <laughs> and, and stuck his head back in and said, the switchboard is still jammed with calls. <laughs> and they're after you. <laughs> so Dominique, our director of player personnel, who is uh, a funny guy to begin with and, and a great director, great judge of talent, great drafter, uh, but a funny guy nonetheless, turned to Tom Telesco, who is, of course, now the general manager of the Los Angeles Chargers, and flipped him his car keys and said, hey, Tommy, go start my car, will you please? <laughs> now, Dom's from Brooklyn, and he was alluding to the fact that oftentimes people from the underworld would would have car bombs put on the car so that when you put the key in the ignition, the car would blow up. That was the reference he was making. And, and, and we all cracked up. That's, that's a great line. I don't think Tom ever went outside either. <laughs> oh, man, it's pretty good. Here, here's the, here's the, the, the best part of the story because it gets even funnier as it goes along. It was a contentious press conference. And the only thing that I could fall back on was, hey, you guys were doing the very same thing when we picked Peyton Manning. And this is the same exact pick. We picked him for the right reasons. I can't tell you he's going to become an all-pro. I can't tell you he's going to be a Hall of Famer. But this is a guy who's going to be a contributing player for this football team. And they, 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 they couldn't yell in unison fast enough, but it's not Marshall Falk. <laughs> and I said, well, we'll see. O only time will tell. So uh, naturally, the columnist was just eviscerated me and, 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 and had amnesia. You know, if, if you listened, if you read the column, he really knew Peyton was going to be good anyway. Uh, but uh, then... It turns out that Edgerin has Lee Steinberg and Jeff Morat as his agents. So I fly to Dallas where they're based. They had their, they had, Morad had his office. Jeff was primarily a baseball agent, had his office in center field 
at the Texas Rangers old ballpark. Not that obviously the new one is brand new this year. The the old one, uh, the old new one. <laughs> it was brand new in those days. And there was an office building in center field right behind the batter eye. And, uh, and that's where he had his office. So I flew. They gave me an appointment, day to come. I flew down. There was no game. And I said, what the hell? I got to come all the way down here to meet you guys to kiss Lee's ring. And, and you don't even treat me to a baseball game. So <laughs> Morad said, well, I didn't know you were a baseball fan. So... We proceeded to talk baseball for about, I don't know, 45 minutes. Steinberg didn't have much to say. It was pretty clear that the, 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 the Peyton Manning-Ryan Leaf thing was still a burr under my saddle, probably was under his as well. So I said, look, at this is what we're going to do. I'm not changing the offer, and here's why. I went into some detail, and I said, furthermore, uh, I'm – I'm one of the architects of the salary cap, so I know how it works. You can't you can't sway my uh, my my feeling about what should or should not be done, and uh, and you can't and I'm not breaking it either. I'm not doing what you did with Will Wolford. I'm not going to get into a a fight with the with the the management council uh, over the uh, over some cockamamie. A bonus that you want to construct that you think is is not likely to be earned, and so uh, uh, Steinberg said <laughs> in in a in a snide way, not in a funny way. He said, "Oh, this is great. We got a, 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 a number four pick in the draft, and we got the Thomas Jefferson of the salary cap to uh, to negotiate with." <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, multiple strong segues there as we're going to cover cap management here in a future episode. But, but I think this is a perfect time to jump into the audible. And Rick, you have the honor of hold on one second, if you don't mind. There's a postscript here. Oh, we're audibling on the audible. Look at this. I'm excited. Yeah, let's take a time out before we, uh, you know, we have to go to the audible. So, uh, um, it, it, uh, a, a two-week holdout ensues. So now we're in training camp, and uh, and Edgerin's holding out. And so uh, the, the Jim Irsay's mad. I'm mad. Jim Moore's mad. Everybody's mad, and the media is just going crazy. So um, and, and Ricky Williams signed for some you know, a contract that had never before seen in the National Football League that that was so one-sided on the club side that it, that it made a completely, it made a mockery of, of you know, what we were trying to do. So um, I said to Jim Irsay, Let, let's, let's hold the fort. I think what they really want is for all the guys in front of us to sign. They, they won't pull a trigger until somebody in front of us signs. And there, there were a quarterback or two in front of us, as I recall. So two weeks of training camp went by. The top three guys signed. They were holdouts as well. The top three guys signed. And Jeff Morad called me and said, uh, I'll be in tomorrow to talk to you. So I said, okay. And and, and we we did the deal in about an hour. And, uh, and, and Edge came to camp. So – 
Um, you know, I, I said to him when he signed, look, don't try to go 100 miles an hour. Um, come, break in slowly. Our strength and con- Listen to the strength and conditioning people. They have your your best interest at heart. We, we need you for 16 games. We don't need you for four preseason games. So the first preseason game went by. He wasn't ready. The second preseason game went by. He wasn't ready. Third preseason game, he's going to be ready, and he's going to play with the starters because it was obvious that he had that ability. And, of course, we're in New Orleans. What better karma could you have, right? Uh, uh, Ricky Williams versus Edger and James. So uh, he didn't start the game, uh, but he came in 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 the second quarter, and we're on about the New Orleans 40. And so we run the outside stretch play. He turns it up and he, he rips off about 26 yards. <laughs> so now we're, now we're in the, in the red zone and, uh, and they hand him the ball again on the very same play. And he, and he just puts on that edger and jet shoom, into the end zone for a touchdown. So Jim Irsay, was uh, Tom Telesco and Dominelli were on my left, Jim Irsay's on my right in another box, but there was a, a partition, a glass partition separating it. So I turned to Jim and I gave him a thumbs up and he gave me a thumbs up back. And Dom said to me, wow, Ed's just saved our jobs. <laughs> so... <laughs> so <laughs> And so he did. <laughs> That's the postscript. <laughs> Very true. But the moral, the moral of the story is that as a GM, as a personnel director, as a personnel staff, you're never sure what the guy's going to look like when he steps on the field. And the most nervous day you have is usually the first, most days, plural, the first day of minicamp when you, you're praying to God that he that he just looks like what you saw resembles some of what you saw at the college level. Um, the first preseason game where you say to yourself, gosh, I hope he doesn't stumble. Peyton did, by the way. And uh, and then the first time he, he tees it up in a regular season game and then you're saying, okay, now show us what you've shown us in the preseason. Those are the, the three most nervous times you have. After that, you know, they are what they are. <laughs> All right. We'll go back to what the original audible questions now here. So um, <clears throat> I am going to set myself up when I get to the question as the sacrificial lamb again, because with what you're going to say, Bill. But here's the, here's the let me let me have you. Johnny Carthy used to say, "You buy the premise, you buy the bit." So here's the premise, and it, it it comes right out of something you were talking about. So Ricky Williams would be drafted fifth by the Saints. And he signed this contract that was generally regarded from a player standpoint as the worst contract of all time in the NFL. Now, in theory, Williams could have earned $68 million in incentives. But the reality is that to get there, that would have required one of the all-time best performances by a running back for many of them. And then there were some that were basically impossible. So he got completely shorted in that way. And, of course, when you set up a contract like that, either way, the Saints win. Because if he got to the point where he's getting these all-time record performances that would have triggered the bonuses, the Saints would have been delighted to pay 
money, and chances were he was never going to get there, even if he performed very well. So they were keeping the money um, in the bank. So our our friend uh, Billy Guerrero certainly had a he took advantage of, uh, and I don't know the name of the lawyer. I don't know whether it was Master P or the lawyer who was truly involved in negotiating the contract, but it, you know it, it was certainly somebody who was the the equivalent of Mike Lynn. Uh, didn't know anything about the football business. So here's the question. Knowing that you could have gotten Ricky Williams at this bargain basement rate, would that have in any way changed your opinion about drafting him instead of Edger? No, absolutely not. Because this is a shameless plug for next week's show but we're going to explain the salary cap and how it works and how at least I feel you should build a winning football team under the salary cap and the first premise of building a winning football team is to be right on your selections be right in terms of how they impact the team on the field and in the locker room not how they impact the salary cap or the bottom line. If you make a decision for money purposes, in most cases, you're going to be wrong. You better pick the right player. And then you better have enough acumen to manage the salary cap. Because if you pick the right players, if you have Marvin Harrison and Edger and James and Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne and, and, and Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis, you got cap problems. Solve the cap problems on your way to picking up wins and championships. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I remember when we've discussed this before. The, the phrase that has always come to my mind is sort of, "Don't let the salary cap tail wag the value dog." Yeah, it's well said. Um, so, just at the time, just uh, when you heard about the when you heard about that deal, I mean the crazy deal. Uh, what did you and, and other – how did your GMs react around the league? I mean, first of all, it clearly has ramifications for everybody below the fifth pick. But, I mean, what did you think? You know, I, I, I don't remember having any, uh, any real thoughts about it at all other than, you know, it's clearly one-sided on, the, on, the, on behalf of the club. Listen, we were just digging ourselves out of a – out of a similar situation, wasn't quite as bad, but a similar situation with Mar uh, with uh, Marshall. So, you know, it can happen to anybody. Uh, you know, it's just it's a shame that that Ricky chose that representation, but he made the choice. Yep. So, going to the other end of the spectrum, so we've seen the worst, and we've seen a couple of these. Um, of late with Kirk Cousins, do you ever think that there will be fully guaranteed contracts in the NFL, say like we have in the NBA? Uh, no, I do not. Um, and I'm echoing the words of George Young, for whom I have the greatest respect, the late George Young, who will get in the Hall of Fame this year far, far too late. But but nonetheless, he's going to be in. Uh the whole, the whole issue of guaranteed contracts revolves around two things. The numbers of players that you have on your team 
and the injury incidents that occurs. So let's take baseball for, or well, let's we'll we'll compare basketball, baseball, and and football. Um, the, by the way, in baseball, there is no rule that the contracts have to be guaranteed. It's just an accepted practice that the agents have have been able to extract from the clubs. Um, and I, I suspect the same is true in basketball, although I can't speak to it directly. The um, In basketball, you have 15 players with a very low injury rate. And in fact, career-ending injury in the NBA is is almost non-existent. In baseball, you have 40 players on a big league roster, but only 25 who are up there playing. The other, the other 15 uh, in normal times, not this year, of course, but in normal times, um, those 15 are, are developing players who are going back and forth from AAA or AA. Um, so you're dealing with 25 players at the major league level. Um, and the injury rate, particularly disabling injury, is not prevalent among, highly prevalent among position players, but is very prevalent among pitchers. So if you look at baseball, they give a lot of guaranteed money, in fact, too much, in my opinion, um, to position players particularly position players past their prime, but that's, you know, again, that's their, that's their prerogative. Um, but almost every club now is very loath to give older pitchers guaranteed money, big guaranteed money, because they know that it's going to get flushed down the drain. So uh, in football, you have... 53 players and a hundred percent injury rate and uh, career ending injuries or injuries that over time quickly debilitate a player's ability to play at a high level, i.e. knees, shoulders, elbows, concussions, back injuries, just to name a few, uh, are highly prevalent. So you you clearly do not want to give guaranteed money to players with that kind, one hundred percent guaranteed money to players who have that risk, because the odds are pretty good that you're going to end up paying out that whole contract, and and get if you're lucky you might get a third of it. Don't forget, if a player comes in at 25, or excuse me, at 22, he's 26 when he reaches free agency. So he's two years from his peak. At 28, they begin to decline. At 30, almost every football player but quarterbacks are done. So, you know, are you going to give a 100% guaranteed contract to that player? Um Certainly not. And you wouldn't give it up in, the, in collective bargaining either. Conversely, with a rookie coming in 
you don't know how good that rookie's going to be. You're judging him against his peers at the college level. So why would you want to give that player all that kind of money when you don't know whether he'll make it or not? Look at the, you know, and, and when we look at the numbers, um, 40% of all first-round draft choices fail. Um, uh, virtually 50%, 55% of second-rounders fail. Almost 60% of third-rounders fail. And then it's the failure rate is past 70% for any below that. So why would you give guaranteed money to those players? You don't know. They haven't earned it yet. So what we have in the present CBA, and we'll have for uh, nine years going, nine additional years going forward, is a semblance of guaranteed money. Right now, for the top players, it's roughly 60% of the contract that they sign as free agents. We're talking about the real elite guys. Um, it's somewhere between 35 and 45% for the next level down and below 30% for um, what you might call the average player in free agency. Um, and that's about right, given the injury risk and, and the value the player has to the team. Obviously, Tom Brady is a perfect example. Two years guaranteed at whatever the price may be. I think it's... Uh, I don't know, $35 million or so a year. Um, it's immaterial because it's 100% guaranteed. There's a big injury risk there at his age. But they were, you know, if they have to eat one year of that, it's probably not terrible. If you have to eat three years of that, which is what you do with the average free agent who signs at age 26, you're, you're probably eating three years of substandard performance. You, you know, that's that's a lot to... That's it's a lot of dead money, which is what it's called in the parlance of the trade. So it makes no economic sense um, to give 100 percent guaranteed contracts. And, and I, in the last 10 years, I've seen more norms that I grew up with in this business that lasted for 30 years um, cast aside. But I'd be very, very surprised to see 100 percent guaranteed contracts on long contracts, on long contracts, um, be, uh, be, be, be the, the norm. I, I think we're going to stay pretty much where we are right now. Rick, do you dare give the agent's perspective? <laughs> All right. Well, you know, with the way this, this show has been going, why not? Let's, let's, let's ride the wave. Let's see what happens. Okay. So, all right. So Bill, let me, let me, and you and I have had this discussion uh, everything you say, I agree with from, you know, the standpoint of uh, harnessing the resources that clubs have and what's best for the club. Well, first, I think we should distinguish between what guarantee means, because there's two guarantees. One is a skill guarantee and the other is an injury guarantee. Right. So in, in, in uh, the, the sports, the other sports that we're talking about, they, they're guaranteed for both. Uh, if a player does not play up to the, the level that the team expected at the time of the negotiation, or if he sustains an injury and isn't able to play, uh, he gets he still gets the money. Bill, I would I would argue probably uh, more vociferously uh, relative to injury that 
the, exactly why you're saying, and I completely understand it again, why it, it you know, would, would, would so uh, handicap teams in terms of budgets and so on. But my argument would be that you're asking the players to play the most dangerous professional sport there is in the world. You're asking the players to play the sport that is most likely uh, to have them suffer a career-ending injury or at least a very debilitating injury, a career-diminishing injury uh, of any other sport. It seems to me, therefore, that, that the thing that the players should at least get out of that is if they've given up their shoulder or their knees or, or the, uh, their lower back to professional football, that they should at least be given the money that they were supposed to earn when they were hurt while doing the activity that the contract wires them to do. Still, I could go either way on it, and I think that's more open. But if, but, but, and I understand it, that with a numbers game in terms of the size of the roster, and so on, it's very difficult. But it really seems to me that if the world were fair, and as as Mike Brown once said to me, you know, this is the NFL. What's fair got to do with it? But in a, in a fair world, when you're asking people to take more risk, you should give them greater protection. Well, I mean, that's a nice argument, soundbite argument. But as you know, um, a lot of uh, how guarantees are governed comes through the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, that's a process that speaks to all players, not just one or two or a handful. And in the CBA, management has over time done a lot of things to try to help injured players. Most notably, the fact that if you make an opening day roster and you're injured during the year and can't play, you get injured reserve, which is 100% pay and benefits for that year. And then you get a stipend, uh, which is about $200,000 or more called injury protection if you can't pay play the following year. Um, so uh, in addition to that, health care is, is provided that following year. So management has moved, management council, the owners have moved toward uh, liberalizing things for players who are injured. But if you're going to give 100% injury protection to 90 players who come to camp, or even 53 who make the final roster, um, you're going to increase costs pretty dramatically. And and that's going to impact the salary cap. And when you impact the salary cap, you impact the the, the, the agreement between ownership and, man, uh, ownership and uh, the union, which is to say that, you know, the union gets 49% of the football revenue and the owners get 51%. And so... If you, uh, as a as a negotiator for management, as I used to be at one point, my my answer to you would be fine. You want to give everybody guaranteed contracts, then knock the minimum down to uh, you know two fifths of what it is now. Uh, you you can do what you want with the money. How are you going to divide it up? It's still the same pot. Yeah, I mean, uh, and you know, even before th- this was a discussion. Uh, that was pre- prevalent, you know, uh, well before the salary cap. Uh, and of course, there was it was actually sort of uh, even more egregious when the salaries 
um, were so much lower that a player, if he played, uh, you know, two or three years in the league under, you know, a typical contract, he could he could not put away the kind of money that would. Yeah, but that's not true anymore. That's not true anymore. Uh, right. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm leading to. That's changed. So the, the money that the, a player can uh, put away and for for uh, a rainy day, be it injury or being cut because he no longer has the skills, certainly, you know, is, is uh, uh, you know, it's much more, uh, the players are much more capable of protecting themselves uh, in that way. Um, but, you know, there, there. It, this, it, it's interesting that it's developed this way, and there, and I understand the parameters of uh, the magnitude because the, the number of of bodies. Um, but uh, it, a lot of this just comes down to the fact that for, that uh, the NFLPA, the players can always win in court, but they but they have the the weakest union when it comes to collective bargaining. <laughs> Uh, I think if you were, if the NFL were up against the uh, the uh, aggregate power of Major League Baseball Players Association or the NBA Players Association, that uh, things would look a lot different, uh, and everyone would have to learn to live with it. But uh, to me, a lot of this comes down to if you can't get it individually, uh, and 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 you know traditionally that's less than four percent of the players, uh, then you ha- you do have to rely on your union to say that this the standard thing is going to be a deal is a deal. You sign me for this. I'm going to do, I have to do all the things I'm supposed to do. Stay fit year round, uh, show up, give a hundred percent. If not, you can cut me. Uh, but you know, if I get injured, the players association, if they were stronger, I think would be pushing for something outside the cap that, you know, some, some override where players could get at least a much more significant portion of, three or four or five years left on their contract. But I agree with you. That isn't the reality. It is what it is. And within the system, you really couldn't do it because you would be taking away from the players who are playing to play, to pay for the players who can no longer play because they're injured. And that's the answer, Scott. (laughs) That's why you can't do it. There you you have. There you go. I'm going with Bill. Rick, Rick gave you an answer that we're hearing very frequently in politics. I'm taking no sides here. I'm just giving you an example. Uh, why is it that we can't handle the COVID virus as well as we should? Well, because Obama didn't do it. He screwed up H, H, uh, HNN1 uh, in his first term. Well, that's, you know, that's life, buddy. Let's move on. <laughs> that's today, not tomorrow. You know, that's yesterday. So the last sentence was the correct, the correct sentence. If, if, you, if you took care of all the players who was in, were injured, you'd have to pay less to the players who were paying. That's the answer, right? Uh, it's, that's true under the current system. And at least, at least, throw me this bone. There is at least one honest ex-agent floating around. That's true. That that I will admit. That I will admit. 
there's probably two or three but hey on that note that is our show for today we hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed putting it together as we alluded to in the show got a ton of fun subjects coming up we're gonna hit things like cap management and a wide range of things inside of the football continuum so without any further ado if you have questions for the audible hit us up at if bill polian and we will be sure to include them in the show or if you just have general feedback or topics you want us to cover thanks again guys it was a good one thank you stay safe everyone exactly as we always say stay safe out there bill street blues bye-bye and maybe trust an agent (laughs) right Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.